if you're good to go, I will uh, welcome you to the podcast. Uh, thanks for coming on, Tom. Um, how's things going today for you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's right at the beginning of my day, so I've got, I got some coffee, I got some dark chocolate, can't complain. Oh, nice, nice. Um, so what I usually do for guests I've had on the podcast before is ask if you can just do like a mini deep dive into your training history, your training background, kind of where you started and what's led you to where you are now. Sure. Um, I'll try to make it not so boring. Um, basically, uh, I've always been relatively athletic. I played rugby, um, etc. and stuff growing up, but, uh, it went to a point where I went more down the gaming route. Not that gaming's bad, uh, but I, I did gaming in it combined with like Ben and Jerry's and all sorts of crap food. So I was like fat and unfit. Uh, and I've surfed since I was about eight. So uh, and, and it was like, I, I was surfing and I was basically just too unfit to even like paddle out and, and have a reasonable surf session. So I was like, oh damn, I need to do something about this. So I initially started just with swimming uh, to help support surfing and then that kind of were led into bodybuilding uh, as you do when you're like 18, 19, because mm. you care about what you look like. I still care about what I look like now, but you know, yeah, aesthetics are important. So um, I did the whole bodybuilding thing for probably about three years uh, and and that, started, that merged into like power building, a little bit of power lifting, a little bit of limping lifting, but that was because of the university I was at was just a really big sports union in the UK. So they, they had lots of exposure to like high level athletes who are doing Olympic lifting, powerlifting. So yeah. I kind of got into that whole jam. Uh, and that was, you know, I was very much into lifting weights, nothing care about body weight, didn't, no interest whatsoever. Um, and then I had glandular fever or what would be known as mono yeah. in, in the US, which is just basically like a viral infection, relatively common in sort of teenagers, young adults, uh, but it's essentially like a, a real fatigue just wipes you out. Uh, I was in bed for like weeks, couldn't really get out, couldn't do much, um, properly wiped out. And I, I lost like 10 or 12 kilos of body weight in those three or four weeks. Um, and, and I was just like super weak afterwards. And the doctors were like, you need to be really careful about returning back to activity because you can get post viral fatigue. And then this can go from being like a three or four week thing to being like a three, six month thing. Yeah. Um, so I started back and I was, yeah, just couldn't, couldn't even lift much. Like my previous deadlift was about 200 kilos actually it was like 197 and a half I never got 200 kilos on the deadlift um, but yeah so I started back with bodyweight training because that's all I could do and I was like a proper noob at the time just doing like rows push-ups some some bodyweight like lunges and that sort of thing just anything to like get moving yeah um, but I think like as I was doing this uh, I kind of I knew I had to do it for a little bit, so I put some research into it and like stumbled across various different people. I can't actually remember. I'm pretty sure Dan, uh, Fitness FAQs, was probably one of the first people I stumbled across. Yeah. Obviously. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I never actually went back to doing any sort of weightlifting. Uh, I just kind of got went down the bodyweight rabbit hole. Um, and I really got into it actually on my, on my placement year. And, and one, of the, one of the things that really got me into it was uh, yours and Lachlan's um, Stronger series. Yeah, yeah. That was like one of the nice. one of the, when I was like first getting into. I'd probably been doing bodyweight training for like a year at that point. Yeah. Um, and I was I can just remember being like sad at work, and I was like, D 
doing my work, but then on like one side of my screen, I just have like the stronger series playing along. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd just be like, because they were long episodes, they're like 30 minutes long each. And I'd just be like watching the whole series uh, for, for a few days, like at work. Awesome. Uh, I think I watched, I watched the original stronger series. There was obviously the stronger two. There was another one as well. Um, you guys did quite a lot of these random series. Yeah, we did two remember, of the stronger series, and uh, there was Olympic lifting series as well. And uh, Lachlan's brother, Matt, did a series that also used that branding of Stronger. So, mm. yeah. So, yeah, anyway, I, I watched those, and um, I think, I, think I, I had some routine that I was doing with the Stronger series. I did Body by Rings as well, so dance program. Yeah. Um, and that was, yeah, that was really like, that was the start. I was probably a year in. The first year of training in whatever discipline you do doesn't really count because you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I got stuck in that way, and then one thing led to another. Um, I was the when I went back to university, I had the the sort of national gymnastics team were training there, and I joined the gymnastics club. Um, so although they were like trying to push to do you know real basic competitions and stuff like that, I wasn't really interested. I was interested in like the calisthenics, calisthenics side of things, but okay. I was exposed to like super high level gymnasts and. I remember watching them like, oh yeah, that's cool. I'll probably be able to do that in like four or five years. And then yeah. <laughs> just w without knowing at the time, like these guys would put 15 years of hard work um, yeah. and just were absolute beasts. Do you so remember I've had what kind it of was about the gymnastics competitive side that didn't appeal to you? I just don't care for it. I'm not like, I'm just not that much of a competitive person. Yeah. Was um, it anything to do with like... Or there was some apparatus that you weren't as interested in, or the complexities of, um, well, not the complexities, the finesse of competition, the little movements to do. To link yeah, I genuinely together just, for floor. I, yeah, I just didn't didn't care for it. Um, it felt quite restrictive, and I was like, I don't want to. Like, you have to do certain things. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I just want to do the handstands and the the plant stuff, the like ring strength, and that's it. I'm good. Yeah, I want to do the rest. Would it be to say if? the stuff that you do now was in a competitive form you wouldn't do it either just because com competition like that doesn't appeal to you is that kind of the yeah same? It, i think it probably would just ruin the enjoyment for me yeah yeah that would, that would be because i play golf quite competitively and i still play golf now um and at a much better level which i'm sure is to do with improved strength flexibility athleticism all that sort of stuff yeah um, but i but i played and i got far too competitive and it ruined the game for me so, oh really uh, yeah <laughs> there was many snap clubs <laughs> <laughs> so is that kind of so, sport is it that for us I, I can i've only played it a little bit but i can kind of imagine that like i got a more it, um with tennis for sure uh that can be frustrating. Yeah. it's funny how just some sports are particularly frustrating i, I should have known I from putt-putt that would make sense <laughs> <laughs> i think golf is so frustrating because there's there's quite a large element of like obviously, there's a huge element of skill and consistency, um, but when you're swinging like a golf club that's like five feet away from you, swinging it around your body at like 100 miles an hour, trying to hit a little ball mm. hundreds of meters into a little hole, like there's a lot of variables that can happen, and and sometimes like you can do something good and it just doesn't make any sense. Or mm. yeah, it's, it's it's just the the variability is much larger and it for seemingly no reason and you're like why did that happen it's very frustrating yeah. it's kind of like it's kind of like learning hand science to be honest yeah i would say very very well, similar in terms of like a simple I, skill but very refined i can't imagine that i'll talk to many people that do calisthenics uh and weightlifting and mobility training like you that have 
experience with golf. So it'd be interesting if you could touch <laughs> on some stuff with golf, because I feel like a lot of people that don't do it perceive it as quite a non-athletic, um, non-physically demanding sport. So are you able to enlighten us a little bit as to what are the physical challenges of golf and also if you could tag team that with anything you noticed from your calisthenic stuff that helped your golfing game where was it was it in the hips was it in the the strength yeah sure i mean flexibility is massive in golf and but it's it's massive if you take a look at it from like a sports science perspective but from a person who plays golf is like your standard old person who um, their opinion on how to get better at golf is just to play golf. Yeah. Whereas if you look at any of the professionals, they're all doing uh, gym work. They're all doing like pretty advanced flexibility stuff, especially to do like spinal rotation and hip rotation. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the crazy. day, like the more the more coil you can get, the more turn you can get, the more power you're able to generate. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I, I just I play off um, three now, uh, which is like a handicap sort of system. So scratch would be. I don't know, pros are below scratch, but it's, it's a pretty high level. Mm. Um, uh, and, and it's like way better than I used to play. And, I'm, and I, hit it, I can hit it miles further. I'm more flexible, certainly, uh, in a lot of regards. So I, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure, like, I haven't, I haven't been able to test it properly in terms of, like, I was younger then and I'm older now. Like, there's so many different variables, but I'm, I'm sure yeah. it's definitely had an impact. Oh, for sure. Um, just before we kind of move to where you are now with your training, uh, you mentioned that when you, I, I didn't even know you had a 200 kilo deadlift because the, the stuff <laughs> yeah, at you, one point. you up <laughs> at one point, maybe, maybe not now. I, I wouldn't. Have I think a I pulled 180 now, I recently. Think. Did you? That, that's still decent, man. Yeah, um, a couple of months, uh, like probably six months ago. I feel like you have potential to get quite a heavy deadlift too, <laughs> given your uh, proportions. I think kind of that long tall yeah. body type uh deadlift is more advantageous and big eight, ar- eight arms yeah um maybe okay, not, yeah, so maybe for, not for bench though right <laughs> yeah i mean for reference my bench press was close to my squat um i think when i was doing powerlifting i had yeah my best was yeah 197.5 never got the 200 kilo deadlift i remember the first time i did 200 um i it just when i got it up i'd never felt that much pressure and weight pulling into my collarbones and like crushing my spine it was this unique super intense feeling that i'd never had before and i went on to deadlift more but i think it was just the combination of it being a pb and it being that mental barrier of breaking that 200 Mm -hmm. or hitting that 200 it was it felt more intense than the 240 that i did which is weird to think but um If we can just touch on back when you were saying you were lifting, you mentioned that you didn't do any bodyweight training. You weren't interested in bodyweight training. I mean, then, pull-ups. Yeah. <laughs> I think Phil Heath does pull-ups, so we won't care that. <laughs> um, but there was, uh, you, you said you got injured. Uh, so you had the glandular fever and yeah. you were supposed to be getting back into training lightly. And that's what made you pick up the bodyweight training initially. Was there any other... Like, was it more uh, you felt that's all you had to do or had you, it passed through your mind a few times and you had gained a bit more interest into giving it a go? And if so, what was it that interested you? Uh, genuinely, there was no interest beforehand. Um, I don't think I was even really aware of it, to be honest. Uh, beforehand, I was, sort of, I was very much into the bodybuilding. Like, I used to follow all the, all the bodybuilders, like, 
uh, like Matt Ogus and some of the Gymshark crew and like Steve Cook and those sort of like oh, more yeah. mainstream fitness athletes. So yeah. me and my friends also used to train together. So I was, and they're still very much into that side. Well, they were very much into that side of things. So okay, um, I never really had just didn't have any exposure to the the calisthenics side of things. Yeah, I genuinely can't remember like what it was that I mean I know it was that that sort of situation that led me to the body weight but I can't remember like where I actually decided to like make that switch over okay. I think it was probably when I was learning to do handstands that I probably was like ah oh, now I'm, I'm gonna go fully into body weight and then it just kind of snowballed once you did get into it yeah actually a, a fellow well he's not an Aussie he's an English guy who lives in Oz um Paul uh, Paul Twynham he's big Paul based in Perth uh, one of the OGs from the handstand community there and he had a had he had a I think it was six years ago now seven years ago maybe he had a hashtag that was like handstand three six five so literally trying to do a handstand every day for a year and he was obviously pretty good at this point he was a student at Vito um, and that, so I just started trying to do handstands every day and that was that was like when probably I was still doing a little bit of weight training at that point as well as the body weight stuff and that was probably the point when I was like oh, I'm just going to go all in on the body weight okay oh nice and then now kind of where you are. Um, I'll let you kind of unpack it, but the way I've observed your fitness journey is with calisthenics, you can, I'm kind of generalizing, but you can go down, say, the bodyweight strength avenue where you're going for the strength skills, your planches, your iron cross, your Maltese, if you get that strong. (laughs) If you're not with these eight arms. (laughs) Um, But then you can also go down, which is what I've, observed you to be going down is the more complex route of exploring or complexity so not necessarily the body weight strength the intensity um you're exploring more the complexity of handstands and balancing in general um, and that's kind of where i see you at the moment so that's not to say that you don't do body weight strength but just from my observation it seems kind of if there's a fork in the road you've kind of gone the way of more the technical complex part of calisthenics is that kind of how you see it or did you want to yeah, unpack sure. that a bit more yeah are we going to say that like the the pure bodyweight strength is like the power lifting of uh of bodyweight training and like the the handstands and stuff would be like the clean and jerk or the, the olympic lifting of bodyweight training i don't know yeah i mean yeah i guess you could It'd be a weird... Anyway, um, yeah, I guess so. I guess I'm probably more down that route than anything. I was very much into the strength side of things for a long time. Um, and I still am. Like, I still have the goals of yeah. doing uh, the, the planche. I got the front lever. Um, Iron cross, I've just kind of discounted as it's never going to happen because of limb length. I did some, like, <laughs> short calculations on on the stress and joints. And I was like, nah, it's probably not worth training. <laughs> you um, didn't say Lachlan do it and think, oh... I've got a chance. <laughs> um, yeah, but like Lachlan, that was his focus. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm not prepared to... So like with the handstand, as you said, like my thing is handstands at the moment, but that's because I've been prepared to sort of dedicate that as my sort of mainly sole focus for the past yeah. two and a half years now. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'd be prepared to... I haven't... I don't have the desire to get Iron Cross, really. To be honest, yeah. I'm just not interested. Plunge, um, maybe. Yeah, that's another. That's another story. Um, but yeah, 
I, I'm probably more down the hands and stuff, but that's just like it's a short term thing. I wanted to get the one arm, and it's one of those skills that you can get normal two arm handstand pretty easily. Not pretty easily. It comes harder to some people, but the the level of training, the level of intensity and focus is much less than it needed for the one arm. The one arm really does need like a lot of dedication and time. Yeah. Um, so that's why I've ended up going more down at the moment the handstand only route. But now the one arm is kind of doable. Um, I'm probably going to branch out and be a little bit more broad with my with my focus. Yeah, congratulations by the way. So you got your first solid ten second. I think you got like twelve seconds on your it half right count. side. Yeah, which is what your goal was, wasn't it? Obviously, you well, would like it ideally 10 seconds on, on both your, arm. Yeah, on your right and left, but getting it on that one arm, similar to uh, for my goal of getting a one arm chin up or a one arm pull up. If I get it on whatever arm gets it first i know there's still the other side to go but i'm extremely happy and accomplished i got it on that one side because yeah I, for sure. I got it's one of those skill. it's one of those skills that's like it's it's not worth like not counting it because you haven't got it on both arms but like you can still do the skill yeah yeah exactly like it's it's like a a right-handed golfer or tennis player being like no i can't i don't know you're always gonna have a dominant hand like if you look at any performing artist um they're always like gonna be much much better on their on their uh, one arm than, than the other it's like some people can only do ha- one arm handstands on one arm some performers mm. uh, generally speaking with the one arm handstand it's like you get about 15-20 seconds on the right before you even start to get holds on your left or your weaker arm so oh, it's, it's okay. quite a, it's a very common thing yeah um, and the same with the one arm chin usually there'd be some like side to side strength discrepancy so yeah i mean i I've, I've only ever got a one-arm chin on my right arm i've never got a one-arm chin on my left i'm the opposite yeah i've had it <laughs> i've had it on the left but not on the right yet um yeah so yeah uh, with your i mean a big question i wanted to ask you having you on here is to do with the one-arm handstand so we were talking oh, before about the uh just I talk about this a lot, but the type of training, body weight training, weight lifting or strength training has this transferability to so many other things, which is why I promote it and support that way of training so much is that it bleeds into all other physical movement. And we were just talking about the fact that you've, even though there's so many variables, you felt a change for the the much better in in your golf game um yeah so all this type of bodyweight training has transferability um this the one-arm handstand is something that this is just my opinion of it in terms of me training it for myself at this point in time so not to say Mm -hmm. this won't change but one of the reasons i've not decided to train for the one-arm handstand is because of the amount of commitment and time involved to getting a skill that I don't see has as much uh, potential to benefit other things. I think that the one-arm handstand is the ultimate in terms of shoulder, um, how do you say it, shoulder elevation. So just like the one-arm pull is the ultimate in terms of one-arm pulling strength. Um, So if if you could do that on both arms, you're the most capable your body could be at that activation of pulling the shoulders back and pulling in much like the one arm handstand is the reverse of that. Mm. Um, 
and this isn't a knock on it. This is my just the way I'm viewing it in terms of the no, amount of time you've scale. got to invest to do it. So I really wanted to ask like the big why as to what made you decide to focus your efforts on the one arm handstand. And then second to that, what uh, physical benefits have you noticed from it? If that was even a reason why you decided to do it, perhaps you just decided to do it for the aesthetics. Like it's fun. It's, it looks awesome. Um, I think two things. One was I underestimated the time it would take. And then the second part was that like sunken fallacy. So I was like, when I first started, to, basically I was like, oh, I spent too much time doing it now. I've got to finish it off. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's also an element and handstands is probably, and handstands and bodyweight training, but I mean, every sport has this element. Um, you know, the, the example of why I've never had a 200 kilo deadlift would mm. probably be the same thing as like some things are just impossible until they're done and then they seem like oh why was i even worried about that it's the same like the four minute mile everyone thought the four minute mile was impossible um i can't remember who ran it the english guy ran it and then everyone started breaking the four minute mile yeah um handstands is probably the biggest thing that i've experienced that in um, when something has felt really really impossible until it happens and then you're like oh so that's how it works and right. like especially when I've coached a lot of people people who are working towards their pressed handstand that seems to be like one of the biggest ones is pressed the pressed handstand hand, yeah it feels absolutely impossible until one day like they suddenly lift and they're like oh I gotta do it another 20 times and it's easy and it's just like it takes that little like switch over what kind uh, of press are we talking are we talking straight just arm like straddle arm? oh straight arm straddle press yeah okay it's like a yeah, that tends to be like they can do the negatives, they can do all the bits and pieces, and then they can't. They just like it feels impossible to 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 get together, and then all of a sudden it just happens. Yeah, I'm there at the moment. Have you not got a press? Surely you've got a pressed handstand. Um, pike press, uh, straight okay, on yeah, tuck, yeah. but not stolder or, or straight. Oh yeah, that's a that's a flexibility rated thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I got recently. I got four stouters for the first time yesterday. So. I know. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you about that, <laughs> but I wanted to hear about the one arm first. <laughs> oh sure. Yeah, I mean one arm. Um, at the end of the day, yes, very little transfer over to anything else. Uh, if you want to be good at handstands, the one arm is the, the way to go. Uh, but certainly, there is a lot of time. Like that is the. I mean, I, I feel proud to to have worked for it. Like, there's not many things that I've committed two years plus of my life to consistently mm. training to achieve yeah. um it's certainly the hardest physical task i've set myself so in, ter it, in terms it, of what in terms of the frustration or um the like the mental fatigue just, or is there physical fatigue with it as well um i would say there's a certain toll in terms of like specialist skills um something that you wouldn't get with say olympic lifting because it's quite a well-rounded practice yeah uh, whereas handstands a very specialized position and it's yeah. only training that position. Um, but I wouldn't say there's a physical toll as such, uh, just mentally. It's a very, yeah. it's like, because because at the end of the day, um, you either can or you can't do a one-arm handstand. There's no in-between. Mm. Um, so when you're doing, you know, something, I would say like, I would say Olympic lifting is, is not of the same complexity, but it has that complexity element. Yeah. Like there's always a spectrum that you can work on. Like yeah. you can either clean and jerk, but there's lots of different looking types of clean and jerk, whereas with a one-arm handstand, you either hold it or you don't. And there was a point in which I was like 18 months into training it, and I was like, I literally have nothing to show for the last 18 months. I can't hold one arm. 
I can just do a nice two-arm handstand at the end of the day. Um, and that that was a, a very frustrating part of it. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. That, that's the only way I can say it. It's, it's one of those things that's like, yeah, I thought initially it was going to take six months. That was, that was my, when I first started. Um, yeah. But when I first started, I had torn my supraspinatus about three or four months before I before then starting training the one-arm handstand. I was going to start training the one-arm I, I Yeah, so I, I had like nine, ten months off because I had ulnar nerve compression and golfer's elbow in mm-hmm. both arms. And then that started to get better. Uh, I got some sort of form back. I was going to start prepping for the one-arm handstand. And then I did a flag on a palm tree when I was on holiday with some friends. Um, and like the, the palm tree shook and I tore my super splinters. So I was out for another like three or four months. And then even when I got back into the one-arms, my shoulders weren't stable enough. I developed bicep tendonitis and I developed bicep tendonitis in the other arm. So it the tree like a... shaking is what caused the injury? Yeah. Yeah, I've literally, I've got the video clip where you see like my shoulders go like, yeah, and just jolt. And it didn't hurt at the time. And it, I woke up the next day and I was like, really, I can't move my arm. And then like everyone I was there with also were into the gym and that we went to the gym and I was like trying to do something. I was like, I literally can't even do a push-up. Um, <laughs> It was, it was, yeah, like very suckish from like the day before I was doing like stolder presses out of the pool and then the next day I couldn't even do a push-up. So I was like, fuck. And that was yeah, after I'm... being out for like a year from previous injury from doing up body stuff. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean like you don't want anyone to get injured, but when it happens in such a simple way, it can be even more frustrating. Very like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, because I've had that happen to me as well. Like, it's just simple. It almost seems stupid as to why it's yeah. you're so injured. Yeah, 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 literally. That one actually wasn't the worst. Like, the, the elbow injury was the worst because it was such a debilitating injury that was, again, felt so pointless. Like, it was just, it didn't really come from anywhere. And all of a sudden, I was like, ow, I can't even do the washing up without getting quite severe pain in my elbows. What was the um, elbow? I had so I had ulnar nerve compression in both arms. I had basically golfer's elbow, but a very bad golfer's elbow. So I couldn't train upper body for about nine months. And that was uh, that was, uh, that was uh, formed over time, or did that happen in one yeah. session? Something happened. I had no. It was like it was kind of formed over time, but then it crescendoed very quickly. Um, I was training three times a week. I was training one arm chin up, and I had started doing some one arm hands and stuff. But this was like just pissing about. Um, but I didn't have good shoulder flexibility, so a lot of torque was going onto my elbow in the one-arm handstand stuff that I was giving a go. One, I was two, I was training one-arm chin up three times a week, which is dumb anyway. Um, uh, and then I was also doing some like climbing. Uh, this was this was when I was like two or three years into doing the bodyweight stuff, and I was just training like six days a week and two hours a day. Um, and I was at university, so I had like I had more capacity to recover, but I was still doing way too much. Yeah. And I did like a one-arm chin-up session. Uh, then I went climbing. Then I did another one-arm chin-up session the next day. Uh, and I think it was like at that point the day after I just woke up and I was like, oh, what is wrong with my elbows? Um, and then I probably just trained for another week after that. And then I was like, no, I literally can't do this. And I literally, yeah, I just had to take, I took it like a week off and I came back to it and it was still bad. And then it was one of those things that I learned a lot uh, about recovery and rehab and that sort of thing during this period. But I literally couldn't train up body for for nine months and so I, during that time I got middle splits at least so I did use the time for something oh um, man I didn't know like... that I didn't know we had such a parallel because when I <laughs> went over to um when I lived in the UK for um it was like eight or nine months I was there may- maybe 10 months I and 
very early on. No, I don't think we were connected at that point. You managed to connect with Mal Wilson, but not even me. (laughs) Yeah, when did we do your (laughs) podcast? Uh, Ages ago, 2017 maybe. Oh, okay. I don't know, I'd have to have a look. But I was hoping to make amends um, this year, and then the whole coronavirus thing happened. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's messed a lot of stuff up, to be fair. Oh, I think that's messed stuff up for everyone. Um, Two so years for, ago. For, for me, October it's... 2017, sorry, was the podcast. Okay, so I very recently just came back from the UK. But I plan on making amends of that by uh, I was going to come over, and that's now been delayed to... Uh, 2021. Um, yeah. I've been meaning to get him over to, to the Southern Hemisphere as well. I wanted to visit New Zealand and Australia and do some stuff down there. He's on been? the list. Never been. Never been. Oh, um, I think so I'd love to visit. Like, for the little time I've known you, spoken to you, I think you would love it coming over here. So, for sure. Uh, for sure. Yeah, let, let me know when you're coming over, man. I'd be happy to show around at some point. Um, why are we talking about that? The ah, that's it. So, and when I initially came over to the UK, which was in 2016, I was just starting to get more into mixed martial arts, and the main one I was getting into was wrestling. And there was a really good class I was doing in Sydney um, before I came over. And then when I came over, I tried to replicate that, but England doesn't have any kind of wrestling scene at all so i like i was just fortunate i found something in australia too because we don't have a big wrestling scene either no um but yes i found somewhere and i wasn't well versed in jiu-jitsu in striking it was just like the wrestling classes i'd done and this guy that was uh he knew a bit about jiu-jitsu asked if i wanted to like spar or roll with him at the end of class and he was a nice guy and stuff so don't think like what I'm saying he did was out of malice. But, <laughs> you know, like he, he lured me like, in. <laughs> I'm going to show uh, this kid what's up. <laughs> but basically, uh, we were like grappling. And in wrestling, it's about control. But in jiu-jitsu, it's about submissions. Like it can be about control as well, but there's submissions in jiu-jitsu. Uh, yeah. So me I not doing it. for a little bit. Yeah, so I, I didn't know anything about these things. Like, just doing the wrestling, I didn't know what I was exposing myself to apart from, like, a wrestling-style counter. So he got me in an armbar, and me, knowing I've got Olympic lifting and bodyweight training in my back pocket, I'm like, I can just, you know, maneuver out of this. There's nothing to worry about. And we're rolling, so he's not going to break my arm. I've got time to work. And then as I'm, like, thinking that, you just hear, like that in my elbow Mm. and so i just like it was the same thing as you in the sense of it didn't hurt immediately um it was just the next day you were like oh if i put pressure on it that way then i can feel that it hurts um and that was in handstand and planche position so he popped my arm and then for the next like eight to nine months i couldn't do any planche or handstand stuff and that was when i after recovering from the injury in the stronger series started back on the middle splits again and uh made <laughs> heaps of progress on it so it's funny yeah. that you saying that i was like same thing I, same i've thing. done the same thing but i think that's an awesome thing which i've said time and time again about um 
body weight training and weights training is that if you get an injury somewhere, you can likely just redirect your attention to some yeah, other yeah. area of the same style of training. Yeah, for sure. There's always something you can work on. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that is also a very a very positive thing about injuries to certain things it often highlights things that you weren't necessarily doing beforehand and it and it does help you keep mentally a little bit happier about the frustration of not being able to do some things by making progress in others so. yeah yeah a hundred percent so now that you've i mean you made a video on getting this one arm handstand for the 10 plus seconds on the mm. right side and then we were just talking about how your goal was to get it on both arms what's the plan going forward is it kind of like, have you been doing programs? Like you've been training it for two years. Have you been following, say, a 12-week program for the one arm? Or have you just kind of been um, doing stuff usually consistently Usually four, four to six weeks. It? Okay. Four to six so, week programs. So yeah. you were at the end of one when you attempted these, uh, the holds that led no, to you getting happened, that 10 to 12 during. Okay. It's, so, it's, not like, it's not like traditional strength training in terms of like, you peak kind of, or something. Yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. really peak for handstands. It's it's very very weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I I started. Um, yeah, when I started training it, obviously, probably the biggest realization I made was that I just wasn't in the best position because the one on handstands is a massive test. One, you need really good shoulder elevation strength, and I was not strong enough. Two, you need good shoulder flexibility. If you don't have good shoulder flexibility you have to be exceptionally, exceptionally strong to hold a one arm. Um, three, you, you need good- standards for these? Like how you're saying good shoulder flexibility. Is there a standard I mean, that you can Just like solid, solid straight line handstand. Yeah. Uh, and then you'd probably want a decent tuck and seven or pike position as well. I, yeah, I did get that from your video. And I love that you don't even necessarily, because the one arm handstand is that peak of handstand control, you don't even need to have the one arm as your goal to train elements of the one arm if you just want better yeah. control of your handstand. So yeah, the, the tuck and the seven are prerequisites. And uh, sorry, even though I don't want a one arm handstand, my current kind of training goals with the handstand is more proficiency, which is involving learning those prerequisites and getting more control yeah. over them. I mean, I, I get quite often give clients like some elements of one arm so people who are more advanced than the two arm i might give them some side flagging um or some like weight shifting from side to side not that they, they might not even have the goal of um getting the one arm but it's just it's almost like just overloading that shoulder elevation like there's only there's only so much load that doing two arm work is going to give yeah um, and yeah just doing like some a little bit of one arm work can really help strengthen up shoulders like for me um during the like the prep to get one arm uh, obviously involved a lot of shoulder flexibility stuff. It involved a lot of strengthening and tuck. I hadn't spent enough time in tuck handstand and pike handstand. So I literally, probably for about six to eight months, like I literally just did tuck and pike, shoulder flexibility stuff and some really basic flagging for one arm. But Why during that those... time, I... Sh sorry, go sorry. On. Those positions. Uh, I mean, the, the phrase is tuck so you don't suck, uh, which is it's super valid. It's just, all it is, is it's just... Uh, it's loading of the shoulder in flexion and increasing intensity. So when you come in straight handstand, this is like basic shoulder flexion strength. There shouldn't be too much weight outside the line. So the, the load in the shoulders is literally just the pushing up. You come down into tuck, some weight goes outside of the center line 
therefore the load on shoulder flexion is just a little bit more intense and then pike is kind of that times about five um, yeah. and it's all it is is it's like it's just testing the level of pull that you have in the traps to keep the shoulders in line with the hands uh, oh. and, and that position becomes more and more important when you're on one arm and you have the rotational element you have all these little things that can fall out of place you need to have that pull of being able to like lock the ha lock the shoulder position in place and overhead right right and so it's, it's just it's just a good prep and it also it, it actively trains shoulder flexibility uh if you can't tuck hands if you can't pike hands and then your shoulders probably suck um, yeah. so <laughs> yeah right and then you know, strength, what's, sorry what's next for you now i do remember you saying that um in your video where you got it that the, you listed those prerequisites of a tark a seven and you mentioned that your seven wasn't perfect so is it kind of oh, it still sucks now yeah so is it like business as usual moving ahead it's kind of we celebrate that achievement but are you just continuing to do what you would have done anyway if you didn't even get that 10 second plus hold on the right side yeah sure i mean I'm, i haven't sunk two and a bit years into this to like just go cold turkey and not train handstands again yeah uh, and, but is that going to involve like getting better at the seven um, and then just continuing all the one arm stuff to just keep building that muscle memory um, I mean it'd be nice to get a better seven than I have but I don't have the best shoulders my shoulders like I've got to the point now where I've trained shoulder flexibility for like six years and I'm like they're just not going to get any more open than they are currently <laughs> uh, and that's one of the biggest limitations for my seven so i'm like i kind of just accepted the fact that there's different shoulder types the same was with middle splits i don't think middle splits is achievable for everyone oh, uh, like right. you, can get, you can get very very close uh, like front splits i would say everyone could achieve but middle splits no and i think the same for overhead flexibility i think probably 90 percent of people can get very very close to that 180 degrees of shoulder flexion but i don't think most people will get all the way there as long as you have, like, I, I've got acceptable shoulder flexibility to do most things in handstand, but seven is not one of them. Or okay. certainly a pretty, pretty looking seven is not one of them. Have you ever seen a uh, tough person not be able to get the middle splits and put it down to, and like, their anatomical build? Um, uh, I'm not kind of, like, I'm not, I would lean more towards, say, everyone can get middle split just because i don't know and i wouldn't want to give someone the excuse when they might be able to but it just hurts too much um and that so would be, yeah yeah i mean if there is there is an element of um like probably more so than any other split there's an element of anatomical limitation in terms of where the head of the femur is in the hip socket that's probably the, the biggest thing. And this is the biggest, like, so if somebody tries to do middle split, so I've got a tutorial middle split in which I break this down, but the main element of middle split is understanding pelvic position mm. and specifically like anterior pelvic tilt. So if you had your pelvis was a, a cup full of water, you want to spill water out the front of your hips. If you don't do that, um, then you're gonna, you're gonna get to a point in which the, the head of the femur and the bone of your hip is just going to block it and this is going to vary from person to person some people aren't going to have this issue and that's probably the five percent the ten percent most of the population will have that issue will have to their pancake will end up looking like a super super wide middle split uh, sorry super super wide uh pancake mm. and then the the sort of the last 
five, ten percent of people I don't think can ever get all the way down, but I definitely think that people can get close. Um, and what, so that's probably, what do you think of the uh, that just basic test where if you have, say, a table at hip height and if you can put your leg on it, you know, one at a time, that shows that you have the ability to sink down into that position. But technically that wouldn't be an anterior pelvic tilt or is that a bogus way of testing if you can do it? Yeah, no, this is fine. Um, so Thomas Kerr's has actually quite a comprehensive uh, set of set of tests for middle split. Obviously, one is the the side split test, like thigh abduction with external rotation. So that's when you put the leg out to the side, toes point up to the air, and if you can sit down to the point in which like your pelvis is flat, but um, you can maintain that hip position, then you can probably get middle splits. Um, it's as again, it's not going to look like the middle splits where people are like lying flat on their stomach with legs out. It probably is going to look more like a super wide pancake. Mm. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, then there's also the the second test would be um, to test your turnout as well, like how far you can turn your feet out because obviously there's certain, like in external rotation. So imagine like standing like a penguin where the feet turn out, feet mm. uh, heels together. If you can't get, I think it's about. 160 degrees there, 150 degrees there, then you're going to run into some issues later on. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's certain things like that, which is which is super important. Yeah. My only concern is if it's not definite in terms of, uh, and if, if, if there is, I've, I welcome someone to show me, I just don't know if there is or not. Um, uh, it's 100% shown that some people can't do it. I know that like you and me both know how uncomfortable middle splits can be and to for a reason if someone anatomically was p proportioned in a way where they wouldn't be able to get it it would hurt if they're trying to force it but can't do it it's going to hurt but then again yeah. if you are able to get it it's also going to hurt so it's going to create a confusion that I wouldn't want to stop someone being able to get it but yeah i mean it's, it's one it of those things that so the so the, the pain the, the pain especially on the outside of the hip is what people commonly experience when they get lower and that often comes down to just like understanding how to set the hips uh and developing like external rotation uh anterior pelvic tilt and like sitting the hips back a lot of people will try to slide down keeping the hips in line whereas for most people they need to push the hips backwards set that hip position and so there's a little bit of understanding like it's the same as saying you know, a snatch is just throwing the barbell over your head is the same as saying like middle split is just letting your feet slide out. There's mm. a technique involved from those two endpoints. Mm. Uh, and, and, and getting that technique right is what helps um, sort of the, the neck of the femur does push into that cartilage collar, the, the acetabula. Uh, and if you can like create that room, basically, that's what's going to give you the, the less pain, certainly. If you can do your middle splits and almost imagine it as like a super, super wide squat. So rather than the knees facing forward, you try to face the knees up towards the sky mm. and you like sink down into it. It should immediately change that stretch feeling from like pain in the hip, leg can't move to actually feeling that stretch sensation in like the adductors, the inside of the, the thighs. That, that shift should be quite noticeable. So it kind of takes out that pain element, but certainly when you get into the floor, um, when you're developing any new range, it's going to take you 
18 months for it to feel comfortable from the point of developing the range to actually like being able to get into that position relatively easily yeah yeah i'll have to come and do a session with you when i come over and um go through some of that stuff uh because i feel like i've i trained it mostly the not the opposite but the other way <laughs> if that makes sense and yeah like, but as it, i said like, i made progress like any training. Training with its issues any training you, the, when you're first getting into it you make mistakes mm. um, uh, so like if i was if i was training middle splits from scratch now i would probably probably would do it similar but i would do it in a different way to how i trained it or, or certainly my technique would have been different yeah i bet we'd say that for most of the stuff we do though hey exactly, exactly. yeah um hindsight is a powerful powerful tool <laughs> yeah I, I know you don't have heaps more time so another thing that i really wanted to talk to you about was um given you're another one that fits into the category of uh, like an average type of person but it, you're actually taller than average um and doing these calisthenics things a lot of people see the best of the best are you know elite gymnasts or the ones that really ascend to do those super strong impressive skills uh whether it be with one arm mm -hmm. stuff or whether it be with body weight strength they're generally quite small people and that's yeah, I think hard average for the av average winning gymnast is like five foot six to five foot eight but yes then, so and, then, and around the high 50 60 kilo mark yeah exactly and i'm about 80 kilos at the moment and you're about 90 kilos aren't you yeah 90 92 yeah that point. so uh, it's really hard for the average person to relate to an, an olympic gymnast who's giving advice on how to do this kind of stuff so to have someone like you be there is i think extremely valuable um for the average person which is why i think your content does is one of the reasons why it does so well um so one thing i wanted to get your opinion on regarding the stolder press or the straddle press that we were talking about before sure um so which, which is being in that straddle support position and having the ability to press up to handstand with straight arms mm -hmm. because this is something i've been working on at the moment and have worked on in the past i've noticed that there's two kind of two elements to it to that ability to fold in half so there's the pancake which is your ability to be in straddle and kind of just fold forward um, a completely developed pancake would be your chest and stomach flat on the ground with your next to your legs and then there's active compression so i'm not sure if i'm using the right terms just let me know mm. if you call it something I, term, terms are much of a muchness it's yeah. like the difference between mobility and flexibility like okay <laughs> it's all, it's all flexibility so there's the pancake and then there's active compression which is the ability to be in say you're just sitting on the ground in straddle and being able to without your upper body necessarily moving so much lifting your legs up off the ground which if anyone's tried that's never done it before the cramps in your quads and cramps are extreme but it's a different sensation to training the pancake um do you notice that, is there any, should we put our attention, people that are trying to learn this, more into one, say more into the pancake or into that compression more than the other? Or are they kind of, they're quite holistic, so they need to be worked together? Oh yeah, definitely they are, they have a relationship. Um, so notice I'm throwing of... away the strengths side of it. So 
this is the strength kind of side specific of it is like, to me is I'm strong you train enough. with yeah, yeah so you I've, train with parallels, you train with elevation exactly press. this is where I'm struggling is that stolder part of it so yeah I was just from yeah. the floor yeah can you do a stolder so, press off blocks or off an elevation um I've not tried to be honest but I, where I'm at at the moment given I'm hot off marathon training and my hips are very weak uh, from all that. No, I couldn't, not even from okay. elevation. Well, I would say stouter press is very, very similar to a tuck planche press in, in strength. Okay. If you, ha if you have if mediocre flexibility. The... Yeah. Um, so certainly, first of all, differentiation is different between, there is a difference between active and passive flexibility. Mm. Um, you have your maximum passage range of a, of a joint angle or a position, uh, which is just however you can get yourself in with a little bit of force uh, under no sort of holding by yourself. And then you have the, the range that you can actively hold. Um, obviously, gravity plays a part and joint levers and a few other things. But generally speaking, you should be able to get like 60 to 80% of your maximum passage range in active. So if you can't do that, then you have an active to passive deficit. So it'd be like one test. So a really super simple test would be like, okay, test, test your max forward fold um, and look at look at how flexible your hamstrings are. And then let's try to lift the leg up in front of you. And let's see what percentage of your max forward fold you can lift your leg up to. Uh, Where okay. this does break down a little bit is um, some people simply have better muscle insertions and lever lengths and all these other sort of things that enables them to have better compression. Some yeah. people just do, and it's just a natural thing. Uh, I personally do not have good compression. I've never had good compression. I've trained it a lot, and it's never really got any better. Um, it's not an excuse, because I can do stylers on the floor. It is improved a lot, but there is definitely a degree in which genetics plays an element. Yeah. Um, the first thing for me would be thinking about what's the resistance to the position we're trying to hold, that resistance is the stretch. So you can go about it in two ways. You can strengthen the antagonist muscle to the one you're stretching. So uh, for the pancake, it'd be strengthening quads, hip flexors, core to lift up into pancake, or you can stretch the agonist muscle, which would be the, the hamstrings, medial hamstrings. Yeah. If you have a really great passive flexibility, it's gonna be much easier to lift your legs up because there's less resistance to it. Okay. So I would say passive, but it, so this is where I think people go wrong with a pancake. People might train pancake with like the good mornings. Um, this is just specifically for press, mm. by the way. This is not like, if you want to develop the pancake, I think the pancake good morning is a really good drill. Drill when you're like sat on the floor, legs out, weight on your back, repping a good morning. I think yeah. it's a fantastic drill. But if you want to develop like passive flexibility, um, you want to, your body gets used to entering that range with that additional load. Um, so the resistance that it then perceives is required to get into that range is more. Yeah. You need to train the the range of motion that you want to get better with compression in a very passive way. Um, so that it just becomes very, very easily accessible. Okay. Yeah. So, so for me, um, for pancake, I actually like like a, like a yin yoga sort of approach where we maybe train like, 80% of our max range, we have chest supported, we have some 
weight on top of us, like another person lying on us, but we have the chest supported. So there's still the force, because the wood pancake, because just because of the position, you need some, some force on top of you, because gravity isn't helping. Yeah. Um, and then the goal of the movement would just be to relax in that position and feel the stretch reflex almost completely disappear, uh, okay. rather than like improve max range. And like sit in that for like five minutes, and then, and then give some compression work a go. But there is yeah. just, yeah, there's some element of just like being able to be really relaxed in that position and have like almost no resistance that will make your compression so much easier. Yeah. Um, two, depending on your hip anatomy, depending on how much, like some people will be able to do pancake with pretty much like 100% hip hinge if they've got really good hip anatomy. Yeah. Um, like just pure pelvic rotation. Other people will get like 60, a, a, a percentage of that range and then the rest will be covered by lumbar flexion, spinal flexion. Yeah, is which that, I know um, take the form of rounding your upper back. Yeah, rounding the back. Yeah. So not everyone's going to be able to get like completely flat, flat, flat. But most people, get, I think, pancakes very achievable for pretty much everyone. Yeah. Um, to some degree. So if if you're the person who has that rounding, then you not only need to improve your hamstring flexibility, you need to be able to improve your spinal flexion, mm. which is something that people don't necessarily train for the compression. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, um, so, and then uh, I, I can kind of like I like to explore these things, but then I also don't want to delve too deep because I know you would have a huge plethora of videos <laughs> on your channel anyway. So yeah, you guys want to look at quite specific, more of this stuff? Quite niche. <laughs> I also don't want to talk too much about like diagnose me, tell me my issues. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, this applies to everyone. Like, if you want to get a normal press to handstand, strength is the most important thing, but cleaning it up making it look pretty getting stouter then yeah flexibility is is key yeah um and then talking of your youtube um one thing i think i've mentioned this to you before that i've always liked about your content is that you can just notice there's an element of design in your mind when you're making these videos, like the style, the there's an aesthetic style to the way you make your videos. And I was just wondering, is this something, uh, this is what I'm saying, I think I've said this to you before, because I think, remember you saying you have a graphic design or something background, but is this something yeah. that just comes to you when you put the videos together or is this something quite purposeful because you have an eye or an idea of what you think looks good? Uh, I'd say it's certainly developed over time. Um, like, I guess I have a from design video, Like, obviously from practice, but did you, before you started YouTube, do any kind of uh, cinema, like, not cinema, were you a cinematographer? As in, like, did you work <laughs> with a camera before? Or was this uh, just designed from something else that you found was easy to apply to the video making? Um, no, I, I kind of learned as I went along, really. Um, I, yeah, I have a design background. I did industrial design and technology at university. I specialized in mm -hmm. app, UX, website design. That was like my, my focus of my years. Yeah. Um, so that certainly helped. I wasn't the best designer um so i wouldn't like i wouldn't say it's my strong point i'd say it looks fine looks acceptable it's just like kind of simple and clean um yeah. 
but I, I, the videography side of thing is something that I've learned more and more the more videos I've made. Um, yeah. I used to make videos a long time ago. Uh, I used to do like, you know, the typical gamer over edits. Oh, uh, yeah. I used to do those and I used to edit for, I don't know if you ever watched any of the like Call of Duty stuff I used to do. Um, I was in Obey and Dare and some, some big clans of like hundreds of thousands of subscribers. I did some of their editing for that. So I, I had it and I did that when I was like 14, 15, 16. Uh, okay. um, so I taught myself how to video edit then. Um, but that was more like After Effects, over editing, color corrections, special effects, music, drum and bass, that sort of thing. Very different yeah. to... Is, there's a massive difference between that and then editing people in real life. Yeah. It's a strange, it's a strange difference. Um, sure. But certainly, like obviously, there's just there's just basic principles that apply. Um, I think it just gets refined. I try to. The one thing I've tried to do is waffle less. So when I look back at my old videos, they're all like 20, 30 minutes long, uh, and I've tried like condense things down a bit, and and that comes with editing and cutting and cropping, but also just like becoming. I guess hopefully better at explaining and being more to the point. Um, yeah. I'm like I, shaking I think... my head as you say that because that's one of the things I always feel like is very present in my mind. And then I'll like, I won't actually, but I'll like black out and then come to and be like, I've been talking for five minutes. Shut the fuck up. You've said your point. Move on. Like it's something I feel I try to work on, but then I always catch myself doing it. It's, uh, yeah. I think it's just practice though. So I think that's say, like that's the sort of yeah. thing where podcasts are good because you can go into more detail and chat and just explain things. But some people with videos, like they just want to get to the point. And I think people would still say that I talk too much now. But uh, certainly like I'll film a video and like the average talking time of my video might be like 10 to 20 minutes. And then when I cut that down and post and like actually, because I don't plan my videos in advance. I kind of just ramble at the camera. I have a rough idea of what I'm going to say and a rough idea of, I've, I've roughly planned out, but I haven't got a script as such. Um, okay. And I'll just, I'll just talk at the camera and then I might have like 10 to 20 minutes of footage and that will become like a five to 10 minute video. Mm. Do you ever like stop the camera and it says like 35 minutes and you just go, yeah. you dick. Like <laughs> now I've got way more work than I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I did uh, that series. Uh, I did one video every day, the seven day at home like program when everyone was initially in lockdown to like give people a free program to, to get going and use. Um, oh, yeah. And all, all of those ended up being like 40 minutes long. And I think when I planned the video out in my head, it was intended to be like 20 to 25 minutes. So uh, they were all fun. Yeah. I always kick myself when that happens. I, uh, I, I have a similar style to that where I, I start writing and I write it kind of how I want to say things word for word. And then I never do that. Like I never stick to it, but writing it down with that intention then helps when I am kind of free balling. When when yeah, you want to have camera. like a, you kind of want to rough out the idea. A yeah, little exactly. Bit Just getting it out of your mind onto a page helps to articulate the concept in my head. So then I can explain it better when I go. If I just kept it all in my head, and the first time I spoke it was to the camera when it was on, I'd be, I'd have like hour long videos where yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm just frustrated at myself for not explaining it. Yeah. But yeah. Apparently. Um, like, go on. Oh, I was just going to, I just, you know, I just ramble. I might say the same thing like three or four times just to, or the same point three or four times to get away that I'm happy in which 
it kind of makes sense yeah so. that's why i like when i do the um like the parodies and sketches and stuff and <laughs> the the end part of the video is they go crazy <laughs> then i've got no limit on what to do but yeah man yeah. um i think your uh your content that you put out like definitely because of all the subscribers that you've got over these last few years shows um you explain stuff easy because of your like who you are it's much more relevant for the average person to listen to things that you have to say as opposed to say an elite gymnast who is so knowledgeable but maybe just doesn't have that um yeah for sure that, I, I, ex I, that experience to relate to how an, at the average person the difficulty they face in a tuck planche to yeah. compared to what they ever would have had to have faced and um, i'm sure it's the same for you as well like you've been through the the struggle from nothing to something and you can understand like it's taken you a while to understand the complexity so you can you have that relation and understanding of what it's like to be just coming into this so you, you can get where they're coming from and how to explain it to those people. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I just think there's a lot of value in p people like us, which is guys that are very committed to this type of training, but are of average size and weight relative. Uh, there's just yeah. a lot, a lot more value in that for the average person. And, yeah, um, for sure. and then just, I think the style of your, your videos as well is a very slice of life type of edit the way you put them together so i just think it makes people kind of like they're dipping into what you're up to each video and then <laughs> dipping back out yeah um, that one was more of a conscious effort though like i think when you're on youtube when you're making content you kind of decide whether what route like what um position you're going to take like are you going to be the person who's the the guru and claims that they have all the answers and they have the best practice and all this sort of stuff or do you take the approach of being a peer and somebody who's in the process with the other people that you're sharing your information with and I mm. think I've always just sided with that peer like I, I don't especially when I first started I tried to make a conscious effort of like not telling people what to do because I didn't know what to do was better I think I have a better understanding now but I still don't know what's best mm. um, so initially it was more like just sharing my experience and I was like okay this is what I've been doing this might help you Mm. and then the more I've coached other people I've kind of I feel like I've I've gone a little bit more into like a, a teacher role but I don't want to kind of steer away from that guru I have all the answers sort of thing I just yeah mm. it's not the I don't think it's I don't think I'm ever going to be in that point anyway um, do you, th do you think there is a best no <laughs> yeah yeah I think it's just like it really just depends on the person and what they want to get out of it and at the end of the day like when you when you put your videos out and it's the same with you like you have your own personality that goes alongside your videos and i think it's very important that people don't try to imitate other people um mm -hmm. try to just share whatever is relevant to you because then people who um are like you and they vibe of whatever you're putting out they they come from that same perspective are gonna just enjoy your videos more mm. yeah um we'll leave it at that tom uh if people want to find more of your content uh what handle can they find you at on social media and anything else you want to plug? Um, at the Bodyweight Warrior, Bodyweight Warrior on YouTube and Instagram. I only really post on those two. I don't use Facebook or Twitter or TikTok. Oh, <laughs> you really on TikTok? Like no, oh man. I want to see I've a Bodyweight enough. Warrior got... dance. Oh man, 
I, I physically cannot. I just I can't. <laughs> as, as we said earlier, like there's, there's, I'd rather do two things well than lots of things mediocrely. Um, <laughs> uh, and I just order search Tom Merrick, T O M E W R I C K. It should come up with anything and everything that's relevant. Great. All right. Thanks for coming on, Tom, and thanks for uh, contributing thanks. to Planch Genesis Evangelion as well. <laughs> that, I had no idea when I was filming that video at the time. I was like, I don't know what he's going to do with this. I have no idea about anime or anything like that. Um, <laughs> You're not seeing the series? No, I've, I've, I literally had no idea. And it's because yeah. I said it in such a flat, like, British accent as well. And yeah. <laughs> everyone else had, like, tried to do the right accent. I was like, oh, dear. Like, no, I feel like that made it better. Because <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, well, I was gonna say, oh man, if you wanted to re-record it, you can say it like this. But I was like, I like it how it is. It's gonna play better. <laughs> it's like when British people try to speak other accents or other languages; they just sound like British but speaking different words. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for coming on. All right, I'll talk cheers. to you later. Nice one. Appreciate it.